0: Alright, good morning everybody. We are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew here in a minute if you want to turn to chapter 28. And if you also want to put your Genesis 9, we're going to be going back to Genesis a little bit if you want to put your finger in Genesis 9. But we're going to start in Matthew 28. I first, Brent was in first service, but want to thank him for, for preaching last week, for doing that. And also like a couple of big family stories. Um... One, Doug Wilson, who was in first service, was in the paper the other day, got, he's retiring and it was a big front page story, so I just thought that was cool. If you know Doug, give him a shout out. He said the end of March is when he retires. And in the same paper, our own Lane Doty, who was here this morning, there he is, got a promotion, so that's pretty exciting. So um, give Lane your congratulations on that. It's always fun to see people in our body in the news uh, in a good way, Right? <laughs> which they always are. I don't know that I've ever heard anything in a bad way, but um, yeah, Lane, thanks for making good news. (laughs) Lane's a good guy. Uh, Yeah, and so we're continuing in the New Testament, and actually this weekend, yesterday, if you're following us in that New Testament, we started in Mark, and um, I've told you before, I benefit personally by knowing where an author is going with a book, and so I put together a chart of the Gospel of Mark So you can get an overview and understand what Mark's doing. They're on the back. If you didn't get one on the way in, you can get one on the way out. Um, Online, we sent them out by email. Um, But Matthew, if you remember, he wrote his gospel to Jewish people to convince them that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Mark wrote to a different audience. He actually was a companion of Paul and then of Peter. And church tradition, the early church father, Papias, tells us that Mark actually recorded the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So when you're reading his gospel, you're getting Peter's eyewitness testimony. He was with Peter when Peter died in Rome, that Mark probably wrote this while he was in Rome, and he wrote it to non-Jewish people, but especially to Romans. Um, He uses a lot of, not a lot, but he uses a number of Latin words that only they would have known. Um, His purpose was a little similar to Matthew, but a little bit different. He was trying to convince the non-Gentile people that Jesus was the, the Messiah or the Savior, and the Son of God. The Son of God is really important in Mark. If you look at the chart, you'll see how and why. Um, and for Mark, it was a little bit different than for the, for the Jews because for a Roman, um, they already had an, they already had somebody they believed was the Savior and the Son of God. It was on the coin what, a couple weeks ago. Caesar called himself the Son of God, called himself the Savior. Um, and Mark is saying, no, the true Son of God and the true Savior is somebody else. Caesar had gotten his title through power and military conquest, and the, in the Roman mind, for somebody to be crucified on a cross was scandalous to call that person a Savior and the Son of God, and so what Mark is trying to convince is that he truly was the Savior the Messiah. So the first half of his book... Is really asking the question, who is Jesus? And I've got on here a couple of questions as you read it through each episode. I ask that question, who is this man? Mark answers it in the middle with Peter's confession that he's the Messiah. That's the the kind of the turning point of the whole book. And then the whole rest of the gospel is answering the question, what kind of Messiah, messiah or Savior is he? Because they thought it should be a military guy like, like Caesar. And he's trying to show that actually that Jesus came as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and that there was a reason he died on the cross for our sin. So if you want to grab one of those, um, like I said, that just always helps me to, to, to keep in my mind what, Mark's, what the author is trying to do. So you can grab one of those on the way out. So I would like you to stand with me. I want to read from Matthew 28. I'm reading from the NIV. Um, and I want to read verses 16 to 20. Um, You can turn in your Bible and follow along. I'm going to do the reading, if you don't mind. So here's what we're told. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is the word of the Lord. So you may be seated. So, this is a really famous text known as the Great Commission, or as some have called it that I prefer, the Great Co-mission, because this is a mission that Jesus calls me on with him, and it's a mission that he calls all of us on. We're all on mission with him to make disciples. Um, of all nations. And this morning, I want to do something a little bit unique, if you don't mind. Most of the time when we go through the New Testament, I'm going to do a whole text like I've done the last few weeks. Um, today, I want to hone in on one particular topic, the topic of baptism. And I want to talk about baptism. And in a few weeks, when we get into Mark and the Lord and that supper that they have, I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. And the reason I want to do that is I really feel like that... Uh, I just want us to be clear on an understanding of what is the purpose, the meaning, the significance of both baptism and Lord's Supper. I think it's easy to grow up in church. You hear those things, you have a pretty good idea, but I really want to, to, to make it really crystal clear where, why it's important and where we stand at 12th Avenue on it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, there are two ordinances that other Protestants pa- uh, practice. Um, outside of the Catholic tradition, and we really believe that Jesus instituted two and only two ordinances for His church. That word ordinance gets thrown around, and for a long time, I didn't even know what it, I knew what it was, kind of, but I didn't know why do we call them that. Well, it's because the word ordinance means a public injunction or regulation, an authoritative rule or law. It's a decree or a command, and we call baptism in the Lord's table com- ordinances because it's two things that Jesus commanded for us to do. Um, We see it here in Matthew 28, where he says, make disciples and baptize them as a command. And then in Luke chapter 22, 19, it says that he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance for me. That do is a command. It's an imperative. Um, So these are the two ordinances that we practice. And we do these two, and only these two, and no others. And I want to show you why. It's because these two things were both instituted by Jesus in the Gospels. They were both of the, these are the two things we saw celebrated in the early church in the book of Acts, and these are the only two things we see expounded in the epistles. And so for that reason, that's why we practice and hold to these two. So why the need for these two? What's, what's the purpose of having these two things? And there are several reasons, but I really want to hit one really big one right now. Um, That God created us as embodied beings. We have bodies. He created us that way. And He knows we need celebrations and ceremonies. He knows that. Um, That's why He instituted seven feasts or festivals in the Old Testament, because He knows that human beings need to celebrate things. To quote the rooted material, some of you did that this fall with us. It's some small group material that eventually we'd like to see everybody go through. Here's what they say, celebrations are important. They mark transitions, accomplishments, and milestones in people's lives. We have ceremonies when people get married, when they graduate, when they have birthdays. The reason we have these ceremonies isn't for the ceremonies themselves. It's because we are celebrating an event or memorable time, and we are honoring someone's life. So baptism and communion are both acts of celebration. And like all ceremonies and celebrations, they're public events. Um, intentionally, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, These two ceremonies are very symbolic and they're full of very deep and profound meaning. Um, Baptism is a public declaration of the acceptance of Jesus' death. Communion is a public memorial of the remembrance of His death. So that's how the two function. But I really want to hone in on baptism this morning, Um, and I do want you to I do want to say, some of the things I'm going to say I think are very important, and I want to ask you to forgive me ahead of time if a couple times I want to stick close to my text because I don't trust myself to go extemporaneous sometimes, and some things I'm going to say about baptism I think are really important. So, I want to jump in. So, why baptism? Why is this so important? And I'm glad you asked that question Um, because it's very important, and the main reason I think it's important is because it's important to Jesus. Two things. Number one, it was important to Jesus. We know that because he authorized it by, it's authorized by the command of Jesus. We see that in Matthew 28. It's something that he commands. He says, You make a disciple, and once a person becomes a disciple, you baptize them. Um, interesting, in Matthew 28, I was just reading this week that Rick Warren pointed out something that I had never even noticed that um, he says that, therefore, go and make disciples. So that's the command to evangelism. Teach to obey everything is the command to edification or to building up the body. And he says that, that Jesus is giving equal weight to baptism that he gives to evangelism and edification. So to him, all three are of equal importance. We, we evangelize, win people to Jesus. We want to build them up in Jesus, but of equal importance is baptism, that there's no, there's no lower level to that. Um, so for the believer... Baptism, this is really important. It is not something that's optional or something to just be postponed, something to be ignored. It clearly is a command of Jesus that a person who follows him should be baptized. He clearly spells that out in this this verse. And it's for that reason that baptism is commonly called the first step of obedience, the first step of obedience. This is what we see in the whole book of Acts. Every time somebody believed in Jesus, they would pretty much immediately they would get baptized. It was just—it was expected. It's what they did. And we, um, by obeying this command, when I become a believer, this being my first step of obedience, by obeying it, I'm showing that I love him because he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So it is the first step of obedience in the believer's life. And it should be only natural that after I welcome Jesus into my life, that I ask the same question, the Ethiopian eunuch act, asked in Acts 8.36 when he says, what's stopping me from being baptized? Um, I'm going to come back in a little bit with a story at the end, but I know some, for some people, especially introverts, it can be a little nerve-wracking to do that, but still it should be the natural heart inclination to say, after I've received him, what's stopping me from being baptized? So it's not only authorized by the command of Jesus, but it's grounded in his own submission to Baptism. All the Gospels record his baptism in Matthew three fifteen. Jesus says that the reason he did it was to fulfill all righteousness. And though he was not a sinner and he didn't need baptism, by taking baptism, Jesus was radically identifying with fallen humanity and the totality of who we are. Um, And it was interestingly, baptism was his first step into his public ministry. So he's not only he's not asking us to do something he hasn't done. It was his first step, and he asked us once I've committed to him for it to be my first step. So, when we're baptized, we're not only following Jesus' command, but we're also following his example. So, it was important to him. And the old, what the old song are saying, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, right? So, that's why it's important. So, why was it important to Jesus then? And to explain that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And that's where we're going to, in a minute, we're going to be in Genesis chapter nine. So if you if you have your finger there, I want you to flip back because I want to show you um, something in Genesis. And here's why it was important to Jesus because he knew the whole story of God well. Uh, He was the Creator. And here's what we learn in the Bible is that our God is a covenant-making God. Our God is a covenant-making God. Um, If I looked up the definition, a covenant is a solemn binding agreement with oaths and obligations which is entered into by two or more parties and it's confirmed by a visible sign. So it's two parties making an agreement with each other, with taking oaths, and it's confirmed with a visible sign. A really good example of a covenant is marriage. Marriage is a sacred agreement. It's a man and woman coming together, making oaths and promises to each other, and in that oath-making and promise-making, that is what makes the marriage happen. It's done before witnesses, and that's what makes that That's that a public thing? But it's not just the oaths and the entering into the covenant, but there's also the exchange of a visible token, a sign of the covenant entered into. And we're going to come back to this in a little bit. And that's what covenants are like. You make the agreement, there's a visible sign. Um, So this is what we see in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, whenever God wants to enter into a relationship with somebody, He wants to enter into a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship. So if you look at Genesis 9... This is, and even the heading of my Bible says God's covenant with Noah. If you look at verse 11, here's the covenant that he makes with Noah I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then in verse 12, God gives the sign of the covenant. So verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my, what's the sign? Rainbow. I've set my rainbow. So the sign of the, of the covenant with Noah was the rainbow. Now flip over to Genesis 12. God makes a covenant with Abraham, or Abram as he was called at that time. If you look at Genesis 12, if we read the first three verses, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Then if you flip over to chapter 15, that's the beginning of it. But in chapter 15, we actually have the covenant. The heading of chapter 15 is the Lord's covenant with Abram. And if you look at verse um, 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to his descendants, and he says a bunch of stuff that we don't need to read through because I can't pronounce half of those words that he's going to say. Um, but he makes a covenant with Abram, and the covenant is to make a nation out of him and to give him that land. So if you flip to chapter 17, and, chapter 17, and if we jump to verse... Um, I think it's verse 11. So in verse 10, he says, this is um, verse 9. Let's do verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. And then here's what he says. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the what? The sign of the covenant between me and you. So, the covenant he makes with Abraham, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. And then, Jesus makes, and here's the verses for all that, Jesus makes a new covenant with us. Flip over to Luke. So, if we go back towards the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, just a couple of books over from Matthew, chapter 22, in Jesus, we receive a new covenant and it's at the, that Last Supper with his followers when he talks about this. So in chapter 22, verse 20, he's... He's given the bread that represented his body. In verse 20, he says this, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So the new covenant is is that Jesus uh, gives everything. He gives his own blood, his own death, for myself to receive forgiveness of sin. And if you want to know the, my side of the covenant, so Jesus offers everything for me, my side is in Genesis 3, 16 and John 1, 12, where God says this, that God loved the world in this way. He sent His one and only Son, right, to die for me. That whoever believes, that's my side of the covenant, whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. Or First John 1, 12, or not First John, but John 1, 12, where He says, to whoever receives Him receives Jesus, that is, they believe in His name, He gives the right to become the child of God. So the terms of the new covenant is, as God says, I gave everything. I gave my son. He died for your sin. If you'll accept that offer of forgiveness, if you'll simply believe and receive that by faith, you are forgiven, you are given eternal life, you become my child. So that's the new covenant. And what would you guess is the sign of the new covenant? Any guess? Baptism. Baptism. Um, This is alluded to in Romans, Paul's great exposition of the faith. Um, In the book of Romans, he talks a lot about the Old and New Covenant. He talks about circumcision and baptism, how they are similar. Um, And I'm not going to read through this, but in in Romans 4, 9 to 11, he talks about them being a sign and a seal, both, a sign and a seal. So baptism is the sign of the New Covenant and the seal of the New Covenant. So, um, why the need for an outward sign? Why the need for this public... Visible embodied token of the covenant we've entered into. Um, And you guys are so full of questions today. I love that. All the questions you guys have. Uh, As we just said, God knows that we need celebrations. We need um, public ones. We need public ceremonies. He designed us that way for two reasons. And next week we're going to have a baptism and we're going to have some people up here. We've got it. We've been working on getting this thing ready. And I think baptism is important. God created it for the person that's going to be baptized, but I think he also created it as a sign for them, but as a sign for those of us who are going to be out here watching. So for the person that's being baptized, God knows they need it. Um, Again, we're embodied creatures, and we are created with the need um, for physical, tangible things. We have that need. And he knows that we need concrete markers that reinforce decisions that we've made. So he gave us baptism, which we'll do next week as a public ceremony that serves to, to really, it fully engraves that commitment on my heart. And we see this all in the Bible. Whenever God would do a, ba- a big act, in the Old Testament especially, the people would say, We had this experience of God and we want to remember it. So they would put up markers, right? Stones, so that every time they walked by and saw the stone, the marker, it would remind them of the event um, as a reminder. And baptism's the same way it becomes a day to remember. I was just talking with Kylie McGregor um, before last service. She was baptized two years ago. I said, we're doing a baptism next week. I said, do you remember that day two years ago? She said, unforgettable. I've never forgotten it. It still impacts the way, it still impacts her life. And that's how God designed it, is to be a day to remember. It reinforces the decision. So the person being baptized, it's like driving a stake in the ground for that person. Um, It's a moment where I'm marking Christ as mine forever, but that moment, that day marks me. And so God intended it that way. So the person getting baptized needs it. I think those that are watching need that sign. And again, why it's public. Because one, there's going to be a lot of believers here next week who are going to witness this. And what baptism does is that sign, it reminds me of the commitment I made to Jesus. It reminds me of the day that I received baptism and of my salvation in Him, and that He's the Lord of my life. We, whenever I do a wedding, I always say that, let this wedding ceremony be a reminder to you of the vows that you've made, because um, that's part of the public thing, is it, it's a chance for the people out there to, to reconsider things. But it's also a sign, I think, for the non-believers who are present when there's a baptism. And I want to tell you, I'm excited, because we're going to have a lot next week. We're going to have a very good number of non-believers that are going to be here watching it, And it'll be a chance, a picture for them, a sign um, for them to to see the gospel. Because that's really what a sign does, is it represents the gospel. That's what signs do. Signs are a picture. They communicate something. When I was young, our signs had to have words because we were slow and we needed the words to explain it. But now, when you see these signs, it's just the two people crossing the street, right? And just the sign itself tells you a story. You know what it means. It doesn't even need words. And that's what baptism is like. By its very nature, it tells the story of the gospel. You know, the water that I have on here. Part of the story it tells is the story of salvation and forgiveness. Because part of the, 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 the gospel talks about, that. some of the metaphor and imagery that's used is, is this idea of washing, being washed clean of my sin. And so as I receive Jesus, it's like I'm washed in his blood. I mean, Isaiah actually talks about that. And I come out white as snow. That through receiving him, there's a cleansing. So it pictures the cleansing. It's declaring to a watching world, what it means to have our sins forgiven through Jesus and in a relationship with God. But I think even more importantly, it tells the story of our new life in Jesus. And that's why Paul says in Romans 6, 3 to 4, all of us who are baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too, so too we may too that doesn't quite sound right, so we may too live a new life. So baptism is meant to picture new life in Jesus. Um, imagine the picture, because Jesus was alive. He died for my sin, he was buried, he rose again after three days. And that if I receive Jesus as my personal Savior, the Scripture talks about that, that in that receiving him, that I, my old self dies, so there is a death of my old self. He puts his Holy Spirit in me and he raises me to new life. So it's a very visual picture of the gospel. Um, Next week when I do this, before we do the baptism, I'm going to show that diagram and explain it so that those who are watching who don't know Jesus will make a very clear connection of what this is symbolizing. I think it tells the story of the gospel in one other way because this is all about Jesus being alive, dying, and rising again and my dying and rising. And this also symbolizes, I think, the promise of a future resurrection. That if... If Jesus doesn't come in my lifetime, I will die, right? and But death is not the end of me. Jesus has conquered death, and at one time in the future when he returns, those who have who are dead in Christ will be raised to new life to live with him forever, a new creation. And so it's a picture of that, a reminder to us of future resurrection. And I tell you, just this week as I was thinking about that, I think our church needs that picture. Um, we've had a tough, like, three-year run with some having lost some pretty significant people in our church and some people that are very much grieving. And so even for any of those people that might be here today who've lost somebody, that if that person had that relationship with Jesus, that they will one day be raised to true and bodily new life in Jesus when he comes again, that we will see them face to face. More importantly, we'll see Jesus face to face. So this is a reminder to even all of us that one day that I... I will get to see my loved one again, the ones who know Jesus. So, that's how it's a sign. But one more thing. Remember, it's not just a sign, but baptism is the seal of the new covenant. And it does so in two ways. Number one, a seal demonstrates association. That I'm associating with Jesus. So, let me kind of explain this. A seal works like... a football fan who wears their NFL jersey around, that by wearing the jersey, they're showing who they associate with, which team has their loyalty. Um, Only Raiders fans would wear crazy things like that, right? Only a Raider fan would put something like that on. Uh, People who are a little more in their sane mind wear this kind of uniform. But I'm indicating my loyalty. And in the same way, baptism is a way for me, it's a seal on me, because seals are visible things, right? Like you get a seal when you get get college students, when you graduate and get your official... uh, you know, your record, your GPA, whatever it is, they put the seal on it. It's a visible thing, right? And it's showing association. This is really Emporia State University. And that's what, that's what baptism does. It de- outwardly demonstrates that I've fully and finally given my life to Jesus, that I identify with him, and he has my loyalty and allegiance. But it's not just a Jesus. It's also associated by, in baptism, I'm saying I associate with Jesus. I'm like wearing his uniform from now on but it's also a way of me saying I associate with his body, with his family, the church. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, how we're baptized into into a body, a local body. So I'm not only pledging my allegiance to Jesus, but to his body. I'm fully identifying with the body of Christ when I get baptized. Just this week, you don't have to turn there, but um, I was talking to Pat, and I I noticed something I'd never seen before. Um, In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, it talks about the early church and the fellowship of the believers. And when we want to talk about what's a church supposed to look like, we always turn to Acts 2, 42 to 47, and we read that. And in, in the Bibles, there's, always, there's, a, there's a heading there, right? And the headings, though they're nice, what they do is they break things up and they tend to cut things off that maybe are meant to be together. And I read this scripture in a new way this week and realized that just above it, it's talking about Peter preaching for the first gospel message in Jerusalem. And here's what it says above that part. It says in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, so they accepted his message, they were baptized, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So to be baptized is not just to associate with Jesus, it's to associate with the family of God, with his body. We belong to each other, and baptism is the mark of our belonging to each other. So, baptism demonstrates association in that I'm saying I associate with Jesus first and foremost, but I'm also associating with his family. And then seals serve to demonstrate ownership. Um, Ancient kings used to have seals and signet rings, and anything that would have the seal of the king literally belonged personally to the king. It was his something under his ownership. This is the seal. It's hard to see. That's the seal of King Edward I of England. And anything that had this seal stamped on it belonged to him. And baptism functions in a similar way. Um, It's not just the act where I'm saying I've laid claim to Jesus, but in baptism I'm saying Jesus has laid claim to me. Um, In baptism, I'm acknowledging that, that he's the owner of my life, that I'm setting myself off as Christ and his alone, and I'm showing to the world and I'm showing to everybody present that I'm not my own that I've been bought with a price and that I belong to Jesus totally, that I've entered a relationship with, not only as my, with Him not only as my Savior, but as my Master and my Lord. So in baptism, I'm acknowledging the claim of Jesus' claim on the totality of my life, um, essentially that I'm, in my receiving Him, and in doing this, I'm signing the deed of my life over to Him. So it serves to demonstrate association and ownership. Okay, so with all that, understanding. Here's where we are as a church. Here's where we are as a church. We believe that baptism is the immersion of the believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about three components of that. First, immersion. Um, The Greek word under that, behind that, is baptizo. And you can tell that in the English, They did not translate the meaning of that word, they simply transliterated it, meaning they just took the letters and dropped them into English. You see that? Okay. In doing that, they did a great disservice to English-speaking people, in my opinion. Um, All the early translations of the New Testament, the, the three main ones were the Aramaic, the Syriac, and the Egyptian, they translated the word, what it meant. I just talked to a fellow this week from Syria, who his language is close to Aramaic, and asked him the word in his translation, and it is translated, the meanings translated. The first people to transliterate, instead of translate the word, but they just dropped the letters, uh, was the Latin translation. Um, I th- am suspicious there's a reason that they did that, instead of translating the word, that they transliterated it, because they had some ideas of what, what they were doing that didn't fit the word, um, but I don't want to go all the way, I mean, I just kind of said it, but I'm just suspicious of that. Sadly, the early English Bibles followed suit with the Latin because when the early English translated, they did it off the Greek, but they had that Latin translation to help because they all were early priests and they knew Latin, and they followed suit, sadly. But the word baptizo is a very simple word. Um, It simply means to dip into or under, to immerse or submerge, to sink into, to plunge, to bathe all underwater. Uh, It was not even a religious word in that culture. It was used of the tempering of steel. When you're making something of steel and you're part of the tempering process, you're dipping it into water. It was used of a sunken ship. It was used of taking fabric and dipping it into a dye to color it. And it was used of, of all things of making pickles. We actually have a recipe in Greek recorded by a physician named Nikander. It's his personal pickle recipe. Uh, I think my mom, my mom, my wife might have a pickle recipe from her mother. Um, but a personal pickle recipe. And in the recipe, twice it uses the word baptizo, that first you baptizo it, you immerse it in water to soften it, and then you baptizo it for a much longer time in vinegar and the other spices so it takes on that flavor. Um, so we immerse at 12 because literally that's what it means, okay? That's what the word means. We also immerse because it shows the picture of the gospel, that Jesus who is... Alive, who died, was buried, who rose again, and that when I receive him, I die to the old self and I rise to a new self. So, immersion very beautifully pictures, acts as a sign um, of what the act's about. So, we believe that baptism is the immersion of the believer. And this is really important. We say that because we believe that baptism is intended for believers only after they have received Jesus and committed their life to Him and entered into a relationship with Him. The baptism is for believers only after they've entered into the relationship with Jesus. And so this is called believer's baptism. And if you've still got your Matthew open, I mean, think about it. What's the order? As you were going, go... Make disciples of all nations, and then once you've made a disciple, a follower, a person, remember a disciple, somebody who has a personal relationship with Jesus, who is following him, who is being changed by him, and who is on mission with him, make disciples, and after somebody's become a disciple, then what? Then you baptize them. So we baptize a believer. We baptize believers. Baptism occurs after the individuals come to the place in their life where they've experienced salvation by believing in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 10 says that if you um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe believe in your heart that God has raised them from the dead, you'll be saved. It's this confession, this belief in Him. When the Roman soldier came to Paul in the jail and said, what must I do to be saved? He simply said this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So the salvation is that believing moment. And then once I believe, the baptism is something that comes out of it. Um, This is really, really important. Um, While it serves as a visible sign of our having entered into a relationship with Jesus, with God through Jesus, baptism is not what brings us into the relationship, okay? It's not what brings us in. Baptism is not a condition for salvation, rather it serves as evidence of salvation, and that's a really important distinction, and I really want to be clear on that. I want to be crystal clear, so please hear me. Baptism is only intended for believers. Baptism is not part of salvation, entering a relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to make that really clear next week, because there are going to be people here who probably think that's part of them becoming a Christian, or they're saving, so I'm going to make that really clear next week. There's a lot of reasons why we and I believe that. I just want to mention one. Okay, so the sign of the old covenant with Abraham was what? It was circumcision. Okay? So the Bible is clear that in that in Genesis 15:6 it says Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. It's that Abraham entered into a believing, saving relationship with God, with Yahweh in Genesis 15:6. He's not circumcised until Genesis 17:26 is when he receives it, after he's already been made righteous before God. And this is so important because Paul even comes back to it in Romans 4, where he says, we've been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. So, baptism is not part of my salvation. It's something that comes after as a sign and the seal of a covenant already entered into. Um, It's just a public declaration of a personal decision already made. It's simply me declaring and displaying outwardly, which you'll see next week, outwardly, what's already happened in my life inwardly, of a relationship already entered into inwardly. It's just the public confirmation of a covenant that I've already entered into. So I want to come back to weddings. So again, it's like wedding rings. Um, If you've ever done any weddings, you know that if a couple were to come, that I were to do a wedding for them, and if we did the vows and the oaths and the promises and all of that, that, that is the thing that makes them married. And if we found out, if I said, May I have the rings? And I explained to people that, that it's a sign. I explained the imagery of the circle and the precious metal. There's actually, because signs always have meaning. And, but if they were to say, Oh my goodness, we forgot the rings, I wouldn't say, Oh, well, then you're not married. Come back in a year. You know, let's reschedule this thing. What makes a person marry is the, the oath, the covenant that's entered into. The rings are simply a visible token of a covenant that's been in, entered into. So that's what baptism does. It doesn't create the relationship with God. It just shows people that I've entered into relationship, right? So after you get married, it isn't like if you have your ring on, you're married. But if you take it off, oh, I'm not married anymore. Like married, not married, married, not married. Like I learned personally, if you go rock climbing in Colorado, don't wear your wedding ring. There's good reasons why they tell you not to do that. So uh, you take it off before you do that. But this doesn't make me married or unmarried. This is just a sign of a covenant I've entered into. So for those reasons, we believe that baptism is attended for believers only after they've entered into a relationship with God through Jesus. Finally, we believe... Yeah, there's the wedding rings. We believe that we, bat, we immerse the believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we baptize in the name of the Trinity. Because Scripture teaches and we believe that the one true God, the creator of the universe, the one God, exists in a community of three... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we baptize in the name of that whole community. So we have two ordinances that we practice at 12th. And it's baptism and it's communion. Um, When I believed in Jesus many years ago, I entered into a covenant relationship with Him. When I believed in Him, that's when I entered that relationship. Baptism is just my, it's the covenant sign. And communion is the covenant meal. And in a few weeks, we're going to talk about why that meal is so significant. Um, Both are sermons without words. In communion, I'm saying, he died for me. In baptism, I'm saying, I've accepted his death for me. In communion, it speaks of his death for us. Baptism speaks of my death with him. So they're actually very significant. And I I hope you leave today with a sense of of these things. I hope you leave today with maybe a better understanding of baptism, why it's so important, why it's so significant, and that's why we do it. And it's so significant. It was one of my dreams for a long time. That's why we're going to move it over here during a normal worship service because it's something that I believe should happen in front of the whole community, the whole body, that we need to see that. So we're going to have a baptism first service and we're going to baptize some people second service. I really challenge you to, hear to, to be here for that. It will... Uh, Again, it will encourage you in your own faith. That's part of the reasons. Come celebrate with the individuals that are going to do that. We've already, we've got the, the tank also not ready. I mean, it's not set up. And we, we were working on the tank and all that. We were talking about having a high diving board up here, right, Caleb, that he's going to install this week. We should probably tell them ahead of time it's only two feet of water though, right? If they, Maybe they should just do the dunk down here instead of the high dive. Um, but I'm really excited about doing that next week and that we get to have a part of that. I really encourage you, when we used to baptize internationals, we would always challenge people, like, bring a friend. This is a great thing for a friend to see, and to, to be able to hear and see the gospel pictured in it. So, just want to challenge you to be here next week. Um, I want to end with one thing. I really, really do believe, because um, I'm sure there are some people here who have received Jesus. Maybe you were baptized as an infant, I don't know but you've you've since that point baptized not whatever you've received Jesus but you have never been baptized after having entered that relationship and i really believe that that is important as a sign of that covenant it is commanded by Jesus it was exemplified by him he gave us the example so if you're here and you're like i've never received baptism as a believer i really would challenge you to pray and think about that because i do think it's very important not only important i think you'll find it very meaningful um, when we worked with internationals, there were a lot of Koreans who came from churches that baptized them as infants, and they're like, you know, I don't really remember when I was, I don't know, eight days old. I don't know how old they are, but they're like, I really don't remember that. I've decided when I was 13 or 18, and I want to do that after. And we, we baptized a number of people, who, had, and it was very significant. And if you're nervous, I just want to challenge you to just pray it over and just do it. Um, this morning before first service, I got a text from a Japanese student. Become a believer here like four years ago. I gotta do this every service, right? Um, Just before I came up to do worship, he texted our family and he said, I did it. And we're like, one of us is like, What? He says, I just got baptized. And that was really significant because he drove, he came all the way. He's in Oklahoma right now. He drove all the way up Christmas to visit us. And we just thought it was to hang out. But really, the main reason he came up is he really was feeling tugged to get baptized. But he was just deathly frightened of getting in front of people. If you know Japanese, especially, they don't like doing things in front of people. He was just deathly afraid. And he said, I feel I need to do it, but I'm too afraid. So we went through some scripture and talked with him. He's been praying since then. And I didn't even know he was going to do that today. But he said, I got baptized today. And so I texted him a little bit later, just personally, between services, and he, he said, yeah, it was, it was, I was scared to death, but it was like one of the most meaningful things I ever did in my life, and that's how God intended it. So if you've not been baptized, I really encourage you to pray and think about it. Take seriously Jesus' command, and we'll be, do more of these in the future. So would you stand with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our salvation. I thank you that you know how you designed us and of our need for these ceremonies and how important these things are. Thank you for baptism, this this sign that really kind of stamps that thing on our heart and our life that really kind of solidifies it for us, the decision we've already made. Um, Thank you for the people that will be here next week. I pray that it'll be just a a huge day for them of putting that stake in the ground. And there will be non-believers here next week. I pray, Lord, that they... They will hear the gospel, that they will see the gospel demonstrated picture-wise, and that you'll begin to work in some lives and begin people moving them towards you. So we pray all this in your good name, Jesus. Amen. So as always, 12th, you are sent.